Well, we dive in today into our study of First Peter, and we don't just kind of ease our way in. We jump right in to some uh, things that uh, can be a little bit, uh, not controversial, but debatable. And so um, I want to start, though, I want you to take a moment and think back to when you came to Christ. You may not be able to remember a specific moment or a day, but think back to that time period when you came to Christ. And then I want you to think about what led you to put your faith in Christ. And then how did that decision change your life? What difference did it make? And then just one last question. How often do you think about your salvation? That's just to kind of get you thinking as we jump into this this week. You know, Peter began this letter by focusing on the topic of salvation. And he was writing to believers. We talked about this last week. He was writing to believers that were starting to experience opposition to their faith. And he knew it was just the tip of the iceberg. It was just the beginning. It was going to get worse. And he wanted to make sure that these believers were anchored in their faith. He wanted to make sure that they were anchored in Jesus as they moved into this storm of persecution. And I titled this study, Anchored, and divided the letter of 1 Peter into eight lessons, eight things that we need to be anchored to in Christ in order to overcome whatever storms come our way. And the first thing that he addressed was being anchored to our salvation. And so we looked this week at 1 Peter 1, 1 to 12. And I want you to go ahead and turn in your Bibles uh, to 1 Peter 1, 1 to 12. I'm really only going to address the first nine verses instead of all 12. But we're going to look at this together. And we are going to have challenges in life. We're going to have trials, tough times in life. And we may go through the storms of doubt, those seasons when... We may question our faith. Is he really there? Is he really my, my savior? I mean, is this really true? And that's why we need to be anchored in our salvation. And so in these first nine verses, Peter repeats a word twice that I think is a real key in this passage, and it's the word rejoice. He repeats it first, he, he, he mentions it in verse 6, and then again in verse 8. And he says, greatly rejoice, not just rejoice, greatly rejoice. And I think we have to define, what does he mean here by rejoice? Well, he's not referring to uh, a joy that's dependent on our circumstances. And the Greek word that he uses here refers to a deep spiritual joy. It's the type that is, it's rooted not in our circumstances. It's rooted in our relationship with Jesus Christ. Knowing that he's in control, knowing that he is going to work everything out together for his good and our glory. 
And so in this section, as I tried to come up with just kind of one main point, and I really believe that he's saying, rejoice in your salvation. That is his main thing. Be anchored in your salvation. Rejoice in your salvation. And so in these first nine verses that we're going to look at this morning, Peter is exhorting them to do that very thing. Rejoice in your salvation. And so now I want to look at these verses, and I want to give you four reasons why we should rejoice in our salvation. And I'm going to give you a little bit of a um, heads up and most of the lecture is going to be spent on the first point, uh, and then the other three will go quickly, so don't panic when it seems like we're still on point one and we're almost done. Um, I just feel like the first point is probably the one that needs the most time, so I'm just giving you a heads up. Don't panic. We're not going to be here till noon. So the first reason why we should rejoice in our salvation is because we are chosen. Verses 1 to 2. He says, To those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood, may grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. He tells them, You are chosen for salvation. God chose you. Now that brings us to the doctrine of election. That is a doctrine that is uh, a little bit of a hot topic, a tough topic. It is one that's highly debated. And I will say right up front, uh, I thought about just ignoring it and letting what I put in your book be sufficient. But I've realized we have to hit this head on. So we're going to talk about it. And let me just say, people agree on one thing, regardless of which side they take. And the one thing that everybody agrees on is that we're chosen. People are chosen. Where the disagreement comes in is how God chooses them, and why he chooses who he does. That's where the disagreement. Both sides say, yeah, God chooses. The question comes, why does he choose who he chooses? That's where the argument comes in. And you may feel like you're in a seminary class today because I'm going to share with you what my professor, Dr. Toussaint, taught us in this very class on First Peter. And so, God bless his soul. He's in heaven now, but uh, I'm so grateful for the things that he taught us on this. So the problem comes up again with who God chose and how he chose them. And there's one word in this verse that is sort of the controversial word, and that is the word foreknowledge. That is a word that uh, each of the two views defines that word foreknowledge differently. So let's just jump in. And uh, I mentioned in your book there were two views, the Arminian view and the Calvinist view. We're going to take them one by one and look at them. So the first view is the Arminian view. They define the word foreknowledge. 
as God is able to look into the future from eternity past, before we were born, he looked into the future and he saw who was going to choose him. That's how they define foreknowledge. According to God's being able to see into the future and know who was going to receive him. And so he chose those that he saw were going to choose him. That's how they say that the foreknowledge comes into play. If they had a slogan or a motto there, they would say, God chose me because he knew beforehand I was going to choose him. God chose me because I chose him. That's their view. And it's basically saying that salvation is based on man's decision, not God's decision. So let's get into some of the arguments for and against this view. We'll start with the, the uh, support for, for this view. People like this view, those who do take this view, they like it because people get to choose. People get to choose their destiny, where they're going to spend eternity. Uh, This position allows people, you know, they can choose God if they want to. If they want to become a Christian, they have the choice to become a Christian. If they want to reject Christ, they can say no to Christ. They have the choice. They like, and the people who take this, they like that part. That's their support. It is the man's choice to accept or reject Christ. Now, the arguments against this view, I'm going to give you two. The first one is it disregards the depravity of man. God knew very well that left to himself, no man on his own would choose to give up his sin and follow Christ. We're totally depraved. And apart from God drawing us, we would never choose him because we would choose our sin every time. And so this view sort of negates that. It, it, it dismisses the depravity of man. And, you know, those that God chooses, he draws to himself with an irresistible grace to accept the gospel. That's the first argument against it. It just kind of dismisses the depravity of man and says, well, man would choose God. Well, no, because our nature is not one that's going to give up sin on its own. The second argument against this view is that it disregards the sovereignty of God. It places the control in the hands of man, not in the hands of God. And so it makes man sovereign over salvation instead of God. And God is either sovereign or he's not. So those are the the two views against it. I've shared why people like it because people get to choose. People argue against it because of the depravity of man and the sovereignty of God. But now let's look at the second view. um, The Calvinist view. They define the word foreknowledge as God knew beforehand whom he would choose. He knew in eternity past, before we were ever born, who he was going to choose. So his choice wasn't based on knowing beforehand who would choose him, but he just chose people 
to be him. As uh, one of my professors in seminary said, he predetermined those who would choose him. If the Calvinists had a a slogan or a motto, they would say, I chose God because he chose me. Salvation, in this view, is based on God's decision, God's choice. Not his own choice, man's choice. So let's look at the arguments for and against this position. The argument for the Calvinist position is that it respects God's sovereignty. God chooses who he wants to choose based on the fact that he is a sovereign God and he has the right to do so. God chose because he's God. And we see this throughout Scripture. There, you know, the situation, he chose Jacob over Esau, even though it seemed like Esau should have been the one chosen. But he chose in his sovereignty, he chose Jacob. He chose Israel to be his people. And Israel, it wasn't necessarily a great nation that followed him. He chose in his sovereignty. That's a theme that we see throughout the Bible. It doesn't always make sense. But the sovereignty of God is throughout. So that is the argument for this position. It, it, it respects the sovereignty of God. Well, let's look at the arguments against this view. And I, will, I don't know how many of y'all have actually been in disagreements on this. And I, I'll say disagreements. But I have sat down with people that I didn't want to argue with about it. Because I'm not going to. But they strongly feel their version of their view, and they will debate on this. And these are some of the things that come up in these arguments. So these are some of the arguments against the Calvinist view. One, they say, well, then God's not fair. If he chooses and man doesn't have a choice to say, no, I don't want to be your child. Or, yeah, I want to go. I want to come to you, but you didn't choose me. So that is one of the arguments. God, you're not fair. How can you choose some people for salvation and others for hell? That's not a loving God. Well, the thing we have to remember, and I remember one of my pastors in Dallas used this illustration. You know, we, we all deserve hell. That is our destiny. We all deserve it because every one of us in this room are sinners. That would be justice that we all go to hell. But God in his mercy, because of his love, we're all on this road to hell, and he just, in his, he just plucks some people off. But the argument against that is, that's not fair. Well, fair, again, is that we'd all go to hell. That's fairness. Uh, people also will ask, well, why didn't he choose then everyone? If he's going to choose, why did he just pick a few? Why didn't he pick the whole world? He could do that. Yes, he could. And my answer to that question is, I don't know why God didn't choose the whole world. But I'm not God. He is God. And one of my professors reminded us, let God be God. We don't have to understand why he does things the way he does. We just trust him. So, um, 
we're the pot, he's the potter and we're the clay, and who are we to question our creator and sovereign God? But that, that's one of the big arguments there. God's not fair. If, that, if he chooses and people don't have a choice. And these, are, these, these make sense. I mean, all of these do. Second argument, then man doesn't have a free will. God is just going to force people to receive him. Man doesn't have a choice. I can't reject him if I want to. I can't choose him if I want to. If God's already made that decision, then I have no choice. A third argument comes up and they, people say, well, then why do I even pray for somebody's salvation? Why share Christ? If God has already decided who's coming to Christ, then why, why do I need to get involved? Why do I need to share the gospel when God's going to make sure that person's going to hear? I don't need to do anything. I don't need to. Why do I even pray? I could pray for my brother to come to Christ. But you're saying if he's not one of God's chosen, I could pray all day and it's not going to do any good. And that's one of the arguments against the, Armini, the, the Calvinist view. Well, I would say to that, we don't know who God has chosen. We need to treat everybody as the elect, as the chosen. We share Christ with them. We pray for their salvation because we may be the very instrument that God has planned to be his tool for bringing that person to Christ. We need to treat everybody as if they're chosen. We have a, a, when I was on crusade staff, we had a saying, a definition actually of effective witnessing. And if any of you have been involved in crusade or crew, as they call it now, you will know this definition. But our definition of a, uh, a successful witnessing was we take the initiative to share Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit, and we leave the results to God. And that's what we do. We share Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit with everybody God brings in our path. And we leave the results to God. And let him be the one who draws them to himself. You know, I'm going to admit, the doctrine of election is difficult. And I know that it is a very controversial <clears throat> topic here in Memphis. I have learned that since I've moved here. Uh, and I thought, why did I not give this lecture away to somebody else to teach? God is sovereign. Um, but there are scriptures that can support both sides. Like I said, I've been in discussions with... I have good friends who take the, the opposite view of what I take. And they will bring out their scriptures to show me why their view is right. And I'll show them scriptures to say why I believe what I believe. It's hard to understand it. And I remember Dr. Toussaint, my seminary professor, who taught on this very topic that we're talking about today as we study First Peter. He said that, to be honest, the Arminian view is more neatly packaged. It just makes better sense. It feels good. We like it. And when he came to teach at Dallas Seminary, he took the Arminian view. 
And there's a doctrinal statement at Dallas Theological Seminary for the professors. They have to sign it. And one of the things they have to sign is that they believe in the doctrine of election that God is sovereign in choosing. And he said, I can't. And they said, well, we'll put you on probation for a year. Well, I mean, in, in, in other words, he said, they let me teach for a year. They gave me a year of, of, to, to kind of think it through. And then at the end of that year, he would either have to sign the doctrinal statement or he couldn't teach there. And because Dallas Seminary takes the Calvinist view. And so um, he said, you know, I thought, well, I'm only going to be here a year because there's no way I'm going to change my mind. But he said, the more I taught scripture, I couldn't just push aside the verses that clearly states the sovereignty of God and the choosing of of people throughout the Bible. And so he said, I switch. I can't explain it as well as Arminianism, but it's where he came down. So, and you know what? And I'm not going to tell you where I stand, although you can probably guess where I stand. (laughs) Um, I do have a position on this, but I don't care what position you have on this. I don't think it's worth the energy and the time to sit down and debate it. And the reason why is that it's not a non-negotiable of the faith. I will sit down and I will bite you tooth and nail if we argued about salvation by works or faith. That is a non-negotiable of the faith. And I will stand toe-to-toe with you on that. Security of salvation, I will stand toe-to-toe with you. It really doesn't matter whether you believe the Calvinist view or the Arminian view on election because we should be living our lives the same way. It shouldn't affect the way we live the Christian life. So we shouldn't make it a divisive doctrine in the Christian family. It's like end times. I don't care if you believe in pre-trib rapture or post-trib rapture. Yes, I have a view, but it doesn't change the way I live my life. It's not a non-negotiable of the faith. And so what I would say to you, take your view. You choose what you think makes the sense as you study the scriptures. But don't spend a lot of time arguing about you're wrong. And I've got friends that have told me, you are absolutely wrong. And I've just had to say, you know, I'm sorry. We just have to agree to disagree. I don't mind that you feel the way you do because we're both doing the same thing we both love the lord we're both bringing wanting to see people come to christ so that's that's um pretty much all i'm going to say on that so (laughs) i think i've said enough um okay so i told you most of our time was going to be on that the first reason we should rejoice in our salvation is because we have been chosen We have been chosen by God. All right, now we're going to run through the next three reasons. I promise they won't, but I just felt like that was something that we just don't need to shove under the carpet and ignore. We need to treat it head on, and Cole's going to be addressing this in a few weeks in Romans 8, so you'll get to hear again uh, about this. So the second reason that we need to rejoice in our salvation is because we have a living hope. That's in verse 3. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us 
to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We believers have a living hope, and that living hope is eternal life. This is not all there is, what we are experiencing today. This life on earth is just the beginning of something far greater. And the reason that we have a living hope is because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He died, he was buried, and he was resurrected. And because he defeated death and lives, we will also live forever. That is our living hope. And so because we have a living hope, we don't need to fear the future. So the first two reasons, I told you we're flying through these last three. The first two reasons that we should rejoice in our salvation is because we are chosen and because we have a living hope. The third reason is rejoice in your salvation because you have a secure inheritance. Verse 4. But I'm going to start in verse 3. God has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And then verse 4. To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled, will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. We have an inheritance that's worth dying for. No pun intended. We have an inheritance that is worth dying for and living for. It's not an earthly inheritance. It's in heaven. It includes all that the believer will enjoy in heaven for eternity. And Peter tells us four things about that inheritance. I'm going to fly through these, but four things in that verse. He says, first, it's imperishable. It's not going to wear out. It's not going to rust. It's not going to spoil. It doesn't have an expiration date. It will last forever. The second thing about that inheritance is that it's undefiled. That means that the inheritance is in perfect condition. There's nothing wrong with it. There's no defects. There's no stains. It is a perfect inheritance. Third thing, it's unfading. It's not going to fade in the sunlight, the brilliance of God's light. It's not going to lose its uh, beauty or value as time goes by. And then the fourth thing, it's reserved in heaven for us. We won't completely enjoy that inheritance until we go home to be with him in heaven. But when we leave this earth, we're going to enjoy that inheritance to the fullest. And we're not going to get to heaven and go up to God and say, uh, God, I'm ready for my inheritance. And he's going to go, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. You know, there were a bunch of deaths this last week and I have run out of inheritances. I'm sorry. We're not going to face that. It is reserved for you and you and you and you. Every one of us. So we've looked at three reasons why we should rejoice in our salvation. We're chosen by God. We have a living hope. We have a secure inheritance. And fourth, rejoice in your salvation because you can be sure of it. You can have assurance of it. Verses 5 through 9. You don't have to question or doubt your salvation. 
It is secure. And then he gives them two reasons why they can be sure of their salvation. Two reasons why we can be sure of our salvation. First, because our salvation is protected by God. He tells them this in verse 5. He says, you are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time, meaning when Christ returns and we're saved from the presence of sin once and for all. You can't lose your salvation. You're protected by an omnipotent, sovereign, all-knowing God. No one can steal your inheritance. No one can disqualify you from getting that inheritance. No one can snatch you out of God's hand. It is certain. Nothing can separate you from his love. It is sealed by the Holy Spirit. You are protected by an all-powerful God. The second reason we can be assured of our salvation is because our faith is tested by trials. Verses 6 through 9. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. They had not, a lot of these believers had not seen Jesus when he was on the earth. You love him. And though you don't see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. He was writing to to believers, as we've already mentioned. They were going through trials and suffering. And he reminded them, your trials are testing your faith. And faith that continues in the middle of trials shows that our faith is real. If it endures, it's evidence of their salvation. If your faith is still there at the end of those trials, you've got saving faith. Saving faith never dies out because of trials. It endures. Trials show the genuineness of our faith. If we lose our faith in God during trials, it wasn't saving faith. So when a believer comes through a trial and he's still trusting God and his faith is even deeper, he can be sure his faith is genuine. His salvation is secure. And so, be anchored in your salvation. Rejoice in your salvation. And we've looked at four reasons why. Rejoice because you're chosen. Rejoice because you have a living hope. Rejoice because you have a secure inheritance. And rejoice because you can be sure of your salvation. And when we're anchored in our salvation, when we rejoice in it, we don't dread the future. We look forward to the day that we will see him face to face. We, we know what is ahead. Um, I remember, most of you know that I moved my mom up here to Memphis 
back in 2010 from Louisiana. And she lived in Carriage Court, not too far away. And one day, Mom and I were in her apartment. We were looking at a picture on her wall, which was a painting of our hometown, Plain Dealing. And Plain Dealing only had a 1,000 people. And so uh, it was a street of the downtown, and that was basically the town. Everything in the town was on that picture. And so we were looking at it. Mom said, yeah, there's the church, and that's where I used to work, and that's the drugstore. And uh, we were talking, and then she turned to me and said, I want to go home. I said, to Plain Dealing? And she said, yes, I want to go home one more time. Would you take me? And at that time, I mean, she was still getting around. She was on a walker, but I thought a six-hour drive with a 93-year-old woman, I'm not so sure, but the doctor said, go, take her. We got into the car, a six-hour drive, went to plane dealing, and we saw the home that we grew up in and their plane dealing, and she saw her two sisters who were still alive her nieces and nephews and the house that she grew up in. And we walked through that. We went to the church on Sunday. She went to the assisted living where she had made so many friends. And on Sunday morning, we took her to church where she had taught Sunday school till she was 90 years old. And that afternoon, on Sunday afternoon, we were coming back to Memphis on Monday. That Sunday afternoon, uh, we went back to the assisted living for her to tell her sister that she was really close to goodbye. Um, And that was very emotional. Um, They just sobbed because they knew that was it. They'd never see each other again on this earth. And they actually died the same day. My mom that morning, my, my aunt that afternoon. And we went, I mean, it was emotional. We were all in tears as they were sobbing. And they just, and some of you, if you follow my blog, may have seen a picture of them just with their arms around each other. We went back to the hotel. Mom was laying on the bed, and she said, I'm ready to go home. And I said, well, Mom, uh, we're going to leave first thing in the morning. We're going <laughs> to, you know where I'm going with this. We're going to go home. We're going to be home by tomorrow afternoon. And she said, no, I'm ready to go home, home. I know where my home is. I want to go home. Here was a woman, and at that time I said, well, Mom, I'm not ready for you to go home, so not yet. (laughs) Let's take one home at a time. Here's a woman who knew her inheritance, her salvation. She rejoiced in her salvation. She was ready. To go home. And as we rejoice in our salvation, that should be our attitude. I am ready to go home. So, let me pray, and then after we pray, uh, I'm going to ask, we're going to just close with the chorus of, and Suzanne Winter, wherever you are, Susanna, uh, just with, I love you, Lord, just as our way to say back to God how much we love him. So, Father, thank you for this tough lesson to teach and to study. But Lord, I pray we don't get bogged down in things that that aren't the non-negotiables of our faith. And I pray that, Father, um, that we would rejoice in our salvation and that we would look forward to our home. 
We love you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.